Jesus made bold claims and the people of his time were trying to figure out who he really was. His claims left them confused and sometimes angry. Through his powerful I am statements, Jesus invites us to gain a fresh perspective and a deeper understanding of who he truly is. Each statement gradually reveals the divinity and character of Jesus. As we piece them together, we see how knowing him changes everything. We know who he is because he said, I am. It is so good to have you here, those of you in the, in the room and those of you at our Skagit campus today, as well as those of you online from wherever you're coming from. Big weekend for us. I mean, yesterday was Canada Day. <laughs> A lot of woo for our neighbors to the north, so happy Canada Day. And on Tuesday, it's the Independence Day, so that's a good thing as well. And so, uh, yeah, we get a little more excited down south here on that one. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're grateful for these great countries of Canada and the United States. But the truth is this, that prime ministers will come and go and presidents will come and go. And the reason we gather today is not because of America or Canada or Independence Day or Canada Day. It's because of Jesus. And to quote an old song, kings and kingdoms will all pass away. But there's something about that name. That name, Jesus. The reason we gather together, that we lift our voices and sing to exalt his name. The reason we look into his word to learn more about him. And that's what we're here for today. I mentioned in our gatherings about a month and a half ago at our end of the year celebration about the non-negotiables of Cornwall Church, the things that have always been in our more than 100-year history and the things that will always be. And one of those non-negotiables is the centrality of Christ that Jesus is the focal point, he's the apex, he is the center of everything we do. We exist to help people find and follow Jesus. That will always be the case. And this series is really about the centrality of Christ. Over the course of the next nine weeks, throughout the remainder of the summer, we are in this series where we're gonna focus in on Jesus, looking primarily out of the book of John. I love the Gospel of John, it's one of the four Gospels. John is a little different than the other three. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are referred to as synoptic gospels. They have a lot in common, some of the same stories. John stands alone. John has some things recorded in his gospel that the other three don't record. In fact, there's some things that John records that Jesus says that the other three gospels don't quote. It's a little bit different. So we're going to be looking into this book of John throughout the, the course of the summer for this. And toward the end of his uh, gospel, John writes these words in the second to last chapter. This is right after Thomas has had Jesus revealed to him. So he, he's gotten rid of the doubts. And John writes these things in John 20, 31. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the chosen one, the son of God. John's saying, I'm writing these things because I want to really bolster your faith. I want to help you in what you believe. I want you to believe the truth. I want you to have good theology that you're built on, but that's not where it stops. He doesn't just want their faith and their belief and their theology to be solid. He says, and that by believing, you may have life. Now we have our biological life and we know that's from God. He he puts in us the spark of life, breathes in us the breath of life. We, we have the life of God within us. And we know that there will be a someday eternal life that we have because of our redemption and our salvation. And those are wonderful things. 
But he's also talking about that John 10, 10 life. I have come, Jesus said, that they may have life to the full right here and right now. And look at what he says that we will believe and then we will have life. And how we have that, that you may have life in his name. There's something about that name. This wonderful, beautiful, powerful name. And what many people believe was a hymn of the early church in Philippians chapter two at the end of it, it says how God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let heaven and earth proclaim. Proverbs 18 says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and they're safe. And we're gonna look at that. I don't know if you noticed, but I'm wearing a t-shirt today. I don't normally uh, preach with like a graphic tee. I mean, I wear t-shirts, but they're more dressed t-shirts. Well, my mom wouldn't say so, but I say so. But you may have noticed this t-shirt. You may have noticed on your way in today that all the ushers, all the greeters are banned. Everyone, all their volunteers have a name tag on that is similar to this. And when you saw this, hello, my name is I Am, for some of you, your mind immediately went to that French philosopher, scientist, mathematician named Rene Descartes, who, who said those now very famous words, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. And he was a philosopher. And just a little history on that. He was trying to figure out about existence, the existential question, do we even exist? Because the, the thought was, maybe none of this is real. Maybe none of us are real. Maybe we're all a part of someone's big dream and if they ever wake up, we disappear. But then he, he got this, this idea that, no, no, no. If I'm a part of someone else's dream, then I don't have the capacity to, to logically have this cognition and, and this reason and the fact that I think, therefore I am, so I'm not a part of a dream, this is real, I'm real. Now, you didn't come here for a philosophy lesson, but that's where that comes from. And that's a famous quote from, from Rene Descartes. When I was in college, a friend of mine, Joel, we were uh, religion majors together. We were in a class and, and he came into a class where we were having a test that he had completely forgotten about. I mean, it was on the syllabus, but he didn't have it on his calendar, he didn't study, he, he, he walked in and was like, oh my goodness. And he realized that when he got the test, there was no way that he could kind of make it up and, and fake his way through. So he simply decided to wax philosophical and he wrote these words down. I think, therefore I am. And then he followed it up. I'm pink, therefore I'm spam. <laughs> and he handed his paper in. Dr. Brindlinger, who was one of the best professors I ever had, brilliant man, great sense of humor, more of a friend than a professor, he wrote on the bottom of that, you thunk, therefore you flunk. <laughs> oh, I love that. I think, therefore I am. Well, today, and I don't speak Latin, so those of you who are classical Latin speakers, you know that I'm going to destroy this, but I want to say, cogito ferde sum. I think about I am. Capital I am. And when I say that, some of your minds immediately go to Mount Sinai where Moses is there in front of the burning bush, barefoot on the holy ground, and God is speaking to him through this bush that is on fire but is not consumed. And yes, that is the truth, and we will get there, but we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. At another mountaintop experience, a summit experience, Jesus had his disciples and he took them way to the north in Israel, outside of the area where Jewish people would normally go to a place called Caesarea Philippi. 
up to the headwaters of the Jordan River, at the base of Mount Hermon. And there is a place called Banias. And in Banias, there was a cave, the cave that was referred to as the Gates of Haiti, to the netherworld. And there was a massive pagan temple built there to the god Pan. And Jesus takes his disciples there, the most unusual place for him to take his disciples. And he takes them there and he asks them a question. We find this in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? Now, if you were with us in the last couple months when we did the resilience series looking in the book of Daniel, you'll know that that title, we talked about this, was the favorite title that Jesus used for himself. He spoke about being the son of man more than any other title. And part of it was because it had a double meaning. Part of it was that he was the son of man. He was like us. He was human. He was the incarnation. He was Emmanuel, God with us, a, a human being just like us, a son of man. But from the book of Daniel, it had a messianic reference as well, that there would be one who is like the son of man who would come. And so when he would say the son of man, is he saying he's human or is he saying he is the Messiah? Oh, yes, he is both. And so he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And this was a safe question. There's no wrong answer. They just got to tell what people are saying on the street, what kind of what the buzz is. And this is their response. Verse 14, they replied, some say John the Baptist, which is an interesting deal because while John and Jesus were cousins and they may have had some physical resemblance, John had been beheaded by Herod not too long before this. And people were saying that this was John the Baptist and, and, and he always wore that, the, the camel and the, the eaten locust. But okay. Some were saying John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Which to us were like, really? But to them it would make sense. Because in Malachi, the last prophet, in the second to last verse in the Old Testament, Malachi chapter four, verse five, it says that before the coming of the day of the Lord, Elijah would return. And some of them were thinking, maybe this Jesus is the fulfillment of Malachi four, five, that he is the Elijah and maybe there was a Messiah coming right after him. Still others said, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So what was obvious is that the common understanding about this Jesus was that he was not just a gripping storyteller. He was not just a rabbi from Galilee. There was something different. They put him in the category with the prophets, like John the Baptist and Elijah and Jeremiah or one of the others. And I wonder when Jesus asked this and they said, well, you know, this is what they're saying. I wonder if he just kind of let it sink in. He's like, interesting, really, huh? And then he turns it and he makes it a little more personal. In verse 16 or 15, he says, but what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Now, those of us who are familiar with this passage, we go quickly to the next verse because it's one of the few times when Peter actually gets it right. His profession of the Christ and Jesus commends him and says, Peter, you didn't come up with this someone on your own. You know, this is divine revelation for you. It's a, it's, a, it's a big apex moment for Peter. It's a good, good time of one of, his, one of his few shining moments in the three years there. But before we get to that, can you imagine the tension that the disciples are feeling? They've just 
Bin lobbed a softball question. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Not a problem at all. But now he throws them a fastball, maybe even a curveball. Who do you say that I am? They're having a quiz about Jesus, from Jesus, and you don't want to get this answer wrong. And they've been with him for two and a half years now. And they've heard him tell stories that somehow started off so innocent and yet became so profound. And they heard him teach with such authority that it was like, people were like, I can't believe this. And they had seen things and they had experienced things that they can't explain. And maybe they've wondered, could he be? And maybe they've had some offline conversations of, do you think? But no one has ever said it yet. And now Jesus is saying, what do you think? Who do you say I am? I'm guessing there was a lot of, um, well, I mean, well, you know, I mean, like, uh, and it's a very important question for us. It's an important question for you and me. Who do you say Jesus is? Because how you answer that will have a profound impact on your spiritual journey and your eternity. As important as it was for him to ask, what do the people say? Or disciples, what do you say? Or even Cornwall Church, who do you say? I think there's an even more important question that should be asked. Who does Jesus say he is? That's the key. Because when Jesus tells us who he is, then we just simply have to decide, is that true or is that false? Is that a yes or is that no? Do I believe that or do I not believe that? Is that right or is that wrong? Then it really doesn't matter. We just either go with him or we don't. And Jesus makes it very clear who he is. He doesn't veil it in mystery. He doesn't shroud it in all kinds of oddities. He, he doesn't make it opaque. He makes it very clear. In fact, what we're going to be looking at in this series over the next nine weeks is what Jesus says to who does Jesus say he is? And what my prayer and my desire for us in these nine weeks is that we would not only hear how Jesus answers that question so that we would have better theology, better faith, better knowledge, but so that we would have life in his name. So today, as I said in this series, we're going to be primarily in the book of John. Today, we're going to be looking in John chapter 8. So if you have your Bible or your, your device you want to turn or, or, or pull that up, John chapter 8. And we're going to look at uh, kind of the intro of this whole series. In John chapter 8, John chapter 8, there's, there, we will return to John chapter 8 later in the series with another thing Jesus says about himself. But in the second half of the, of the chapter, this is one of those moments where if you ever thought that Jesus was just kind of a, a, always just keeping the peace and making everybody happy and everybody getting along, Jesus is a full-on lightning rod in John chapter 8. I mean, he throws down, he mic drops, he, he gets these people, these Jewish people who have been following him, who have believed in him, he gets them frustrated, irritated, and infuriated, so much so that at the end of the passage, they try to kill him because of the things he says. Now, we don't have time to go into it all. Let me summarize it. If you get bored in the sermon today, read John chapter 8. You'll be going, man, Jesus was a savage. Just read it. At least you'll get the word of God today. But I'll summarize it. Jesus is talking to them. And he says, listen, if you follow my teachings, that's what makes you a true disciple. Because my teachings and my word are the truth and you will know the truth 
and the truth will set you free. And they push back and they say, well, wait a second. What do you mean set free? We're not slaves to anyone. Our father is Abraham. And they're always hiding behind Father Abraham. We're descendants of Abraham. We're Abraham's kids. Our father is Abraham. We've never been a slave to anyone. And Jesus says, well, first of all, yes, you're a slave to sin. And second of all, you say your father is Abraham, but if Abraham was your father, you would do the things that he does. And the things you're doing is not what he does because you're trying to kill me. So you're really, Abraham's not your father. They didn't like that. So they come back and say, well, God is our father. And again, you can read this. Jesus says, eh, no, you have a father, but it's not God. In fact, he goes so far as to say, you know who your dad is? You know who your father is? The devil. And he gets this contrast. He says, my father is God. Your father is the devil. I speak the truth. You speak lies. I bring freedom, you're enslaved. I've come that you would have life and you guys are trying to kill. And he ends that whole thing by saying this, you do not belong to God. That's the setup. John chapter eight, verse 48, the Jews answered him with all that said, the Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon possessed? This is like verbally the lowest blow they can throw. They're, they're going below the belt. They're just shooting low. This is like a shot to him. And we've talked about before how the Jews and the Samaritans didn't get along. And it wasn't just a rivalry. And it wasn't just they didn't like each other. The Jews loathed the Samaritans. You can see this by putting them on the same level. Demon-possessed and Samaritans. It'd be like me saying, you worship the devil and you love the 49ers. I mean, it's like you put them on the same level. They're right down there. He's, and they, they say, you're a Samaritan. And that was just, that was just so derogatory and demon possessed. And I love this. Jesus comes back to him and says, I'm not possessed by a demon. And what he doesn't say is anything at all about the Samaritans. Follow this little side note. It's because Jesus won't lower himself to their level. And he's not in any way gonna put the Samaritans down. While Jesus is not a Samaritan, he stands in solidarity with the Samaritans. A beautiful picture of Jesus. He says, hey, I'm not demon possessed. And then he just starts dropping these truth bombs. Verse 51, I tell you the truth, old school, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, that's King James with the Southern accent. Maybe your NSAB says, truly, truly, I tell you. We'll come back to that later. I tell you the truth. Look, he says, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. You notice Jesus doesn't say, if anyone keeps the Ten Commandments, if anyone keeps the Levitical laws, if anyone keeps the Torah, if anyone keeps the prophets, if anyone follows the wisdom literature, if anyone stays with the Hebrew scripture, he says, no, if anyone keeps my word, he will not taste death. This was crazy. This was foolish. This was laughable. But no one's laughing because it's blasphemous. That Jesus is somehow exalting his authority above the holy scripture of the Torah, that his word 
is what it is and that he has authority over life and death? Who would say that? Who could say that? Why would anyone say that? And so the response back to him in verse 52, at this the Jews exclaimed, now we know that you are demon possessed. Abraham, he's the patriarch. Abraham died and so did the prophets. Yet you say that if anyone keeps your word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? I mean, he died and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? And this is our question that is so important. Who does Jesus say he is? Who does he think he is? Now, they're way ahead of their time because in the 70s, there'd be a song, Mr. Big Stuff. Who do you think you are? And they're asking, who do you think you are? You are full of it with the things you're saying, and you're full of yourself. And he comes back and says, I'm not full of myself. I'm not here to glorify myself. In fact, he would say one more thing that would just really upset them. He said, I'm being glorified, but it's not by me. You know who seeks my glory? My father. My father does. Well, then in verse 56, he says this. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day, and he saw it and was glad. Now, I don't know if you've ever read that and been a little bit confused by that because Abraham lived 2,000 years before Jesus did. And so it says that he would have rejoiced at seeing Jesus' day and he did see it and was glad. So is Abraham back? Is he watching from heaven? How does that all work out? Well, here's a couple thoughts on that one. Going clear back to Genesis chapter 12, verses two and three, when God made a promise to Abraham He said, Abraham, you will be a great nation and you will have a great name and you will be a blessing. Verse three, it says, and all the peoples of earth, not just God's chosen Jewish people, all the peoples of earth will be blessed because of you. It was a promise that there would be something from from Abraham's family, from his nation, from his bloodline, from his lineage, somehow that would bless the entire world. He had no idea that it would be 2,000 years later with the Messiah, but he believed it. What was a faith? Abraham believed in his faith. He was declared righteous because of his faith. So he heard this promise of something that would happen, a day that would come. And for him, through the eyes of faith, he saw it. God said it. He believed it. It's as good as done. And he was glad about what would happen. Or maybe, maybe it wasn't just through the eyes of faith. Maybe it was something that he experienced when as a father in obedience to God, he stood over his son Isaac, the son of the covenant, with a dagger preparing to kill him. And just before he does, he notices there's a substitution, a ram stuck in the thicket. And the joy of a father that his son doesn't have to die that a substitution can come and die. And maybe, just maybe, there's a glimpse that there would be a substitutional atonement someday when another father sacrifices his son so that all sons could live. Well, whatever the case, 
Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day, and he saw it, and he was glad. Look at their response to him. Verse 57, you're not yet 50 years old. By the way, I am now 60. I mean, I am full on to senior citizenship there, right there I am, 60 years old. It just happened last week. All right, so I'm older than they're even saying Jesus is. You're not yet 50 years old, the Jews said to him, and you have seen Abraham. I mean, you can understand how absolutely ridiculous all of this sounds. If you're in the context of that, that Jesus is saying about his words and about Abraham and all, it would be as if I stood before you today and said, listen, I know we've always had the Bible as our foundation and it's a good book, it really is, but from this day forward, my word is the authority around here. Yeah, you can read the Bible if you want, but listen to me because my words are gonna be the ones that are really gonna have the authority in your life. And on top of that, you're saying, well, but the apostle Paul said, you know what, Paul, Paul rejoiced at the thought of me being the pastor here. And he saw it and he was glad. I mean, you'd be going, what are you talking about? Yeah, you're a senior citizen and all, but Paul was 2,000 years ago. This is what's happening here. And when all this is going, Jesus comes now with the kicker. And this is the one that caused them to just say, that's it. This was the tipping point. There's no one going back here. Verse 58, I tell you the truth. Here it is again. This is the verily, verily I say unto thee, truly, truly I tell you. Some of your translations might say amen. You know, we use the word amen it means, so let it be, this is the truth. We use it at the end of a prayer. Jesus uses it on the front end of a prayer. Uh, he says, amen, I'm, I'm gonna tell you some things and it's the truth, like hold on to it. Like if you ever pray with Pastor Bill, Bill Gilfillan, he always starts his prayer this way, amen, Lord. And the first time I heard it, I thought, oh, that poor old senile man. He doesn't even know how prayer works. How did he make it through all these years as a pastor? He prays amen. He's doing exactly what Jesus does. Jesus starts his prayer with amen. He doesn't end it with amen. He says, hey, here's the truth. Listen up. Take notes on this one. Jesus says amen. And then he gives these, in our English language, these six words. When he says this, before Abraham was born, I am. Before Abraham was born. So they keep going back to Father Abraham, the patriarch, hiding behind Father Abraham. Before Abraham was born, I am. Now that phrase, I am, that is going to be key to this entire series. It's going to come up every single week. And in the Greek, it's the words, ego imi. Ego imi. Ego imi can be translated I am or I am he. And we'll see it over and over again. In fact, throughout this series, we're going to be looking at these I am statements of Jesus. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the gate. I am the alpha and omega. All these I am statements. And when he says before Abraham was born, I am, they try to kill him. Now you say, well, that's, that's kind of harsh for a guy that's got bad grammar. I mean, <laughs> you thunk, therefore you flunk. Just, just flunk him. Don't kill him. This, that's, killing a guy is that's pretty harsh for someone that can't get the tenses right. That's, it's just bad, you know, you know, before Abraham was, I am. That's, you got your present past and all those tenses wrong. It wasn't about that. When Jesus said before Abraham was born, I am, Jesus separates himself from Abraham. In fact, Jesus separates himself from everybody else. 
before Abraham was born, you see, he was created. Jesus said, I am. I'm the creator. Before Abraham was born, you see, he, he's finite. He had a starting point. I am. I, I'm infinite. And you talk about how Abraham has died and before he was born and how he's died. See, he was temporal. But I am. I am eternal. So when he says, before Abraham was born, I am, he's claiming his eternality and divinity. That he is eternal and he is divine. He is God. In John 1, 1, it says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. I am. And when he says, I am, know what they're saying? Oh, no, he didn't. You don't say that. This isn't just a bad tense what he is saying when he says, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, some of you, your minds go to Mount Sinai, Exodus chapter 3, Moses in front of the burning bush, barefoot on the holy ground, God speaking to him. And God is telling him, you're going to go into Egypt and you're going to deliver my people out of slavery. And he says, no, 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 I'm not going. And God says, I will go with you. And Moses just starts grasping at straws, any excuse he can come up with. And he's really getting desperate. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 13, Moses said to God, okay, okay. Suppose, like hypothetically, I haven't said yes. We didn't sign on the line yet. I'm not going, but suppose. Suppose I go to the Israelites. Now, I'm not saying I'm going, but suppose I go to the Israelites and I say to them, okay, the God of your father has sent me to you. Now, now, just pretend with me here. And suppose they ask me, what is his name? because that's what they're gonna say, right? Then what shall I tell them? And Moses is probably thinking, I'll try anything to get out of this. And God could have responded saying, you know, you're right, Moses. My bad, don't go. Or he could have said, Moses, you're an idiot. But instead, God answers this question. Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And this is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. You want to know my name? I am. This is referred to as the tetragrammaton. These four letters, yod Hav vav Hey. It's where we get our word Yahweh. Yehovah. This is the very, the unspeakable, holy name of God. The I am this Yorevave. I am who I am. I am that I am. I will be what I will be. It's, it's the verb to be. And some of you remember the old philosophical teacher Popeye when he would say, I am's what I am's. And that's all what I am's. It was a very clear self-awareness picture. What you see is what you get. This is what I am. And there's a limitation. That's all what I am. When God says I am that I am, he's not limiting. He's saying I am who I am and that's all that there is. It's not a limitation. It's unlimited. And God's speaking of himself in this way. And then he says, this, verse 15, this is my name forever. The name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. Little side note, 
is that when the Septuagint was translated, that's when the Hebrew scriptures were translated into Greek, in this passage where it says, I am, they translated it, ego imi. We'll talk more about that next week. But in this to be is this picture of God and it, it, it gives us a theological truth. There's a theological word we rarely use. The word is aseity. Aseity means this. Aseity is the absolute self-sufficiency, the independence and autonomy of God. There's a lot of character traits of God that we can develop in our life. God is good, we can be better. You know, we can be good. No, we're not better than God, but we can be good. God is loving, we can love. God is righteous, we can have righteousness. God is patient, we can be patient. But not with this one. This is not a character trait of God that can be emulated with us. This is the essence of his existence. That his existence is within himself and it is not contingent on anyone or anything and there is no deficiency with him, within himself at all. What that means is with the aseity of God, that he created this world not because he was bored and lonely. That would mean there would have been a deficiency. He didn't need little creatures to go around worshiping him because he had a bad self-image. He has no, he doesn't need us. Why does he create? Out of the sheer joy of expressing and displaying his glory. Why does he provide salvation? He could have in the garden says, that was it. That was a bad experiment. Let's just wipe them all out. But even in Genesis 3, he's pointing to what he would do in Jesus to redeem his lost creation. Why? Just because of his grace and his goodness to show his mercy. Why does he require us to worship? Because he's got this low self-esteem and if people every Sunday come in and sing his name, they don't make him feel better. Not at all. God doesn't need our worship. We need to worship God. It reminds us who we're not and who he is. And what about eternity? That he would share his glory and his reign with us? Why, so that have some little co-laborers up there? No, because he's just that generous. God is complete within himself. So when Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am, he has taken on the very nature of God and I am reveals what he is and who he is. He's using the very name of God. And Jesus is saying, I am. Now, in the remainder of my time, let me just give you three other examples out of the New Testament, out of the book of John, of this powerful, wonderful, beautiful, ego imi, I am name. The powerful name of God. The night before he's crucified, he's had the upper room experience. He's washed your feet. He's done the Eucharist. He goes across the Kidron Valley up onto the Garden of Gethsemane over there on the Mount of Olives. And he knows what's going to happen. And as Judas comes, Judas comes to the garden with a regiment of Roman soldiers. And scripture says they come carrying lanterns, torches, and weapons. Weapons. So here you have hardened Roman soldiers with weapons coming. And here's Jesus unarmed. Now Peter, we find out later, has a sword. But put that away, Pete. We'll get to that. These Roman guards, these Roman soldiers come. And he sees, I mean, you see the torches, you see the, 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 the lanterns, you hear the rattling of their armor. And this is what it says in John 18. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, 
Who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. Ego imi. I am he, Jesus said. Okay, so he's giving himself up, he's turning, he's identifying himself. Yes, but the next verse says, when Jesus said, ego in me, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Roman soldiers who are not followers after God Roman soldiers who are not Jewish, Roman soldiers who are taught to be brave, Roman soldiers who are armed draw back and fall to the ground. Why would they do that? Because when Jesus says, I am, it's the powerful name of God. John chapter 6. We'll look at this more next week. John chapter 6, a lot of things happen. Jesus feeds the 5,000. He sends his disciples across the, the Sea of Galilee, there's a storm, they're rowing, it's a difficult time. Jesus walks across the water to them. Some of you are familiar with this story. And it says that the disciples are terrified, terrified, terrified at the storm, terrified there's this ghost coming across the water, terrified, they're terrified. John chapter six, verse 20, Jesus gets them, verse 20 says, but he said to them, it is I, ego and me, it is I, don't be afraid. Now, if we read it that way, it sounds like a, a familiarity. Like, hey guys, it's just me. Don't freak out. And, and that might be the case. Guys, it's, it's not a ghost. You know, we, you know bread, fish, me, all, stories. It's, it's, it's me, you're okay. But if you take the Greek and translate it literally straight across, it can be translated this way. He said to them, I am. Do not fear. Now, that's a different kind. See, when it's, hey, guys, it's just me. That's what a friend we have in Jesus. But when he says, I am, it's holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And the beautiful thing is this. In the storms of our life, he says, hey, it's just me, your friend, your brother, Jesus. What a friend you have in Jesus. And I am holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty, I am. They're both. What a wonderful name. And Jesus says, I am the God who controls creation. I can handle this. I can handle the storms in your life. The final one, John chapter 4. Jesus is going through Samaria. We've already talked about the tension between Jews and Samaritans. The woman at the well, she's got in their culture three major strikes against her. First of all, she's a female in their culture. It's a negative. She was a Samaritan, as we've seen. And she had a very broken past and life. She's been married five times, and we don't know if she's been divorced five times or if she's had five husbands that died. Either way, her past is very broken. The man she's living with now is not her husband, so she's breaking the, the Jewish laws. And maybe it's because he doesn't want to marry her and die like the other five, or he's just using her. Whatever the case, she is a broken woman. And Jesus engages in a conversation, and she's shocked that he would be even talking to her. And Jesus goes straight for her vulnerable spot. 
And when it gets really too uncomfortable for her, she changes the subject and she talks about what we're never supposed to talk about, religion. So she starts saying, well, changes the subject completely. You know, we worship God here, Mount Gerizim, and you guys worship God in Jerusalem. And she's just trying to get out of this awkward conversation. And Jesus is like, okay, you want to talk religion? Let's talk religion. Let me just tell you one thing. If you ever talk religion with Jesus, you're outgunned from the beginning. <laughs> and she realizes that because Jesus starts talking to her about worshiping the Father and spirit and truth. And tr again, try, just trying to get out of this conversation, she throws this default kind of like kick the can down the road statement when she says this in John 4, 25. The woman said, okay, okay, okay. I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And I think Jesus is going, oh yes, he will. You have no idea what you just said. I have come to explain this to you. And what's absolutely amazing, this is John chapter four, early in Jesus' ministry. This is the first time that Jesus reveals who he is. And he doesn't reveal it to the high priest. And he doesn't reveal it to the Pharisees. And he doesn't reveal it to the teachers of the law. And he doesn't reveal it to his disciples. He doesn't reveal it even to a Jewish man. He reveals it to a broken Samaritan woman who is least likely, least worthy, least deserving. And it's a beautiful picture of why Jesus came. Because he came for those who needed him most. And his response to her is this, verse 28, 26. And Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Literal translation, Jesus said to her, ego ami, I am. He is speaking to you. What a beautiful picture. The same God who speaks to Moses on Mount Sinai now comes to this broken Samaritan woman and says, I am. Speak to you. I'm the God who wants to be known. Yes. Yes, I am. Yes, I am eternal. Yes, I am infinite. Yes, I am righteous. Yes, I am holy. Yes, I am just. Yes, I am creator. I am sustainer. I'm redeemer. I'm the object of all creation. Yes, I am. Friend of sinners. Yes, I am. Wants to be known. Before he created the heavens and the earth, he was. When the earth and everything in it passes away, he will be. He holds the universe together with the smallest atom to the greatest galaxy. All is in his hands. The sun is hidden by his shadow. And when the earth was set on its foundations, he rested upon it. 
He stirs the waters of the ocean with his finger, and he shapes the mountains with his breath. He is entirely holy and completely other. There is no one like him, and there is none before him. No one can question what he has done or what he will do. His kingdom is everlasting, and he will exist forevermore. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is the prince of peace. He is the king of kings, the righteous king, the king of the Jews, the king of glory, the king of the ages, and the king of heaven. He is the Lord of lords, the Lord of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is Jehovah Jireh, he will provide. He is Jehovah Rapha, he will heal. He is Jehovah Mekadesh, he will sanctify and set us apart. He is Jehovah Rohi, our shepherd. He will restore us and make us whole. He is the most high God. He is our deliverer, our redeemer, our savior. He is our strength and our shield and our deliverer, this eternal and everlasting God. Before him, there are no gods formed and after him, there will be none because he is the Lord. Besides him, there is no savior. Angels in heaven worship him on his throne. He will not give his glory to another. He will not share his creation. He's a jealous God and a consuming fire. He is the commander of the armies of heaven. Before him, nations crumble and rulers kneel. He is our harbor in the tempest. He is safety to the tempted and tried. And he has come. He has come to set the captives free, to strengthen the weak, to heal the lame, to cause the blind to see. He has come that we may have life and breath to breathe. He has come that we might know him. He has come that we might know his, lim his limited love and his, his goodness and his immeasurable mercy and his never-ending grace. His forgiveness has no boundaries and his acceptance sees no imperfections nor race, nor color, nor wealth, nor poverty. In him, we are made clean. Through him, we are sanctified. He is indescribable, incomprehensible, irresistible, and invincible. The heavens cannot contain his glory. Death cannot consume him. Life cannot outlast him. And all knees will bow before him. And at his name, every tongue will confess that he is the God of gods and his name is the great I am. Yes, I am wants to be known by us, by you and me. When I was on vacation last week, I read a book by Louis Giglio and the title of it is I am not, but I know I am. I'll talk more about that next week. My prayer for us this summer is not just that we fill our heads with more knowledge about I am, 
but that we will know I am. Peter writes this at the end of his second epistle. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. May that be what we do this summer as we look at the centrality of the one, the I am, the name above all names.